0: Welcome to the World Affairs Council's Election 2020 Project. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Council. Tonight we kick off this special series of panel discussions of the key issues that American voters should be informed about as they head to the polls. At the World Affairs Council, we believe one of the things we should be doing is help to prepare our community for this important function of citizenship. So I hope you'll be with us for the next 10 programs, including Watch Parties for a Presidential Debate, and Election Eve. Next week, Dr. Breck Walker will chair a panel on foreign policy challenges in Russia, Afghanistan, and North Korea with Ambassador Christopher Hill, Dr. Svetlana Saravanskaya, and Minister-Counselor Annie Forsheimer, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Afghanistan. Check our calendar at tnwac.org for details and registration, and bring a friend. A quick note about your host, the Tennessee World Affairs Council. This is a unique organization in our state, a nonpartisan educational nonprofit group that works to bring you the world. Global literacy is our goal. You can find out more about our work on the website, tnwac.org. While you're there, I invite you to become a member of the council and to consider a donation to our tax exempt 501c3 organization. The World Affairs Council needs your support now more than ever. With a suggested donation of $100, you can help the council continue to offer free and public programming to discuss critical global issues affecting American security and prosperity. I'd like to thank Mr. Jeff Mochow of Kansas and Mr. Ward Cornett of Ohio for their gifts of $100 to the council today. Ward and Becky, uh, best wishes to Lieutenant Andrea Cornett serving aboard the USS Nimitz in the North Arabian Sea. Also, thanks to Herb Marsh for his gift at check into the program tonight. Let me mention that this week, new and renewing members and friends making a donation of $100 or more are eligible for a drawing to win a copy of our friend, Professor Tom Schwartz's new book, Henry Kissinger and American Power. We talked with him on Tuesday night and you can see that interview on our youtube.com slash TNWAC channel, along with scores of other informative webinars in our archive. Tom's book on Kissinger is really a terrific read, but join in any case and please make a donation to support the work we do. Last thing about the World Affairs Council, we are a nonpartisan educational group. We do not provide endorsements or recommendations on the partisan questions of the day, including the upcoming election. The assessments and opinions of our guests are their own. China. 14 years ago when I was a student of Professor Yang Zhang at the University of Tennessee, after I retired from the military, I was struck by the books and documentaries I was reading and watching about quote, rising China. This wasn't the China I had visited in the early 1980s as a Navy officer. But when we arrived in Beijing and Shanghai and other cities with Dr. Zhang on a study abroad trip, I marveled at row after row of new blocks of high rise apartments and businesses, gleaming cities lit by spectacular light shows amid stunning historical landmarks. It was enough to knock you over. And that was some years ago. Now the United States and China are looking at one another with new sensibilities. There's more talk in the public arena about confrontation where before there was cooperation. The Secretary of State went to the Nixon Library recently to critique 50 years of the opening with China and he had very little positive to say. There's talk in the air about decoupling, trade wars, alliances facing China and talk about war wars. What are we to think about the future relationship with this global giant? That's why we've invited four wicked smart people to talk with you tonight. We plan for enough time for an insightful conversation with our chair and you and your tough questions. Understanding the U.S.-China relationship is part of your charge as a citizen as you get ready to elect the President of the United States for 2021 to 2025. Please listen and choose wisely. Leading you through this conversation is my great friend, Professor Susan Haynes. It's my privilege to welcome her and thank her for serving as your chair for the program. Susan Turner Haynes is an assistant professor of political science at Lipscomb University. Prior to her doctorate, uh, she was selected as a public policy and nuclear threat fellow at the University of California, San Diego. Haynes' research specializes in Chinese nuclear strategy, Chinese nuclear proliferation, how global politics is transforming China's weapon modernization, 2016. It's a, a book that she authored. And she also serves as a board member for the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Susan, welcome and uh, thanks for chairing our, our panel
1: tonight. Thank you, Pat, honored to be here. Um... And,
0: and the floor is yours, please uh, have a good evening.
1: Thank you. Um, Again, I am very honored to be here, uh, especially among such esteemed guests as we have here on the panel. As Pat mentioned, I don't think that it bears reiterating that China is absolutely critical um, to U.S. foreign policy, to the world as we look uh, forward into the future. I think that if you look at um, the platforms of both parties, you can see even back from 2016 to now, um, the emergence of the prioritization of China on the world stage, really and truly, China is at the front of of everyone's minds. Um, And I think that because of that is absolutely appropriate that we begin the World Affairs Council's uh, series for 2020 election topics on the topic of china uh, before we begin our conversation i want to introduce you to uh, my esteemed colleagues on the panel tonight so that you can have an idea of their background and their considerable expertise um, Dr. Yang Zhang is a professor of political science at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, Go Valls, as Pat mentioned, he had studied um, under uh, Yang for a study abroad program in China, and I did as well, which was really a, a wonderful experience. Um, Yang's main research interests include Chinese local government and politics, mass political culture in China, Sino-US relations, and relations between China and Taiwan of note um again that he's led multiple trips of students on study tours to china Um, And both Pat and I are participants of that and very grateful to him for leading those trips. Um, Bonnie Glasser is a senior advisor for Asia and the director of the China Power Project at the Senior Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, uh, where she works on issues related to Asia-Pacific security with a focus on Chinese foreign and security policy. She is also a non-resident fellow with the Lowry Institute in Sydney, Australia and a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. Ms. Glasser is, has worked for more than three decades at the intersection of Asia-Pacific geopolitics and US policy, so welcome. Um, Jeremy Goldkorn is the founder and director of Danway, a research firm which began life in 2003 as a website that translated and analyzed Chinese media, internet, government regulation, and censorship. The Financial Times acquired Danway in 2013, and he moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2015. Uh, He is a co-host of the Seneca podcast and editor of SupChina.com. Interestingly, he once rode a bicycle um, from Peshawar to Kathmandu via Kashgar and Lhasa. Google that map, Ralph. You'll be very, very impressed for sure. Um, And John Scanepeco is uh, another member of our board. He is head of the global business team at the Baker-Donaldson Law Firm in Nashville. He works with companies doing business in China, Europe, the Americas, and Africa. He advises companies that are considering a China strategy and companies that are now doing business in China or with China-based businesses. Uh, Mr. Scanapico serves as honorary consul from Great Britain and Northern Ireland and Tennessee. So welcome all of you. I am very excited to hear your insights and your experiences your expertise on the various topics in terms of how uh, Tonight's program will go. I'll just kind of give a little bit of a rundown. The title of the program um, Is confrontation cooperation and conflict and we want to kind of frame the remarks in regards to those types of themes Um, First, we are going to hear from Professor Yang Zhang in regards to potential areas for cooperation and overall the, um, you know, 10,000 mile view on US Sino relations. Um, Then we're going to pivot, we're going to transition to the areas of confrontation because as Pat mentioned, Um, There are many, specifically as framed by both presidential candidates. It does seem as though the um, relations that the United States has with China has taken a turn, and what is most often emphasized are these areas of conflict and confrontation. So we'll first uh, begin with discussing um, our economic relations, um, and then we will pivot to Bonnie and discussing security. And then lastly, we will discuss uh, with Jeremy all of the human rights implications and the domestic politics uh, dimensions of China's policy and US-China relations. So without further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and lend the floor over to uh, Professor Yang Zhang for your overview of relations currently.
2: All right, well, thank you, Susan. Thank you, Pat, Uh, and uh, I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Well, my presentation is about the differences uh, between President Donald Trump's China policy versus candidate Biden's China policy. And also, in what areas the United States and China uh, could possibly cooperate in the in the future. So let me start by saying that, uh, from what I have observed and read about these two presidential candidates, um, I don't see a lot of differences uh, between them uh, with regard to China. Uh, I'll detail those uh, a little bit later. Uh, and uh, in fact, taking a hard line, uh, uh, you know. Uh, against China uh, is one of the few uh, areas, uh, those two uh, people agree. Uh, policy toward China is probably the only area uh, that uh, the uh, Republicans and Democrats in Congress right now seem to agree on. Uh, if you look at the bills that have been passed uh, recently on a bipartisan basis, uh, you know regarding Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, you know, The bills have been passed overwhelmingly on a bipartisan basis uh, in in Congress by both Democrats and and Republicans. Um, I think both parties, uh, I've heard, you know, uh, uh, both parties have come out admitting uh, the engagement policy, uh, you know, with China has failed in the last 30 years. Uh, The United States has always taken a missionary kind of approach uh, toward China. Christian missionaries uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century went to China to bring civilization and and gospel to China Uh, and in the last 30 years, the U.S. government has tried to preach China on human rights uh, you know um, know, civil liberties, democracy and rule of law Um, uh, but uh, many people could argue that uh, the missionaries the Christian missionaries uh, had probably more impact uh, in China, than the US government in the last 30 years in, in changing China. So uh, uh, now let's talk about, you know, uh, kind of a, like a very brief review uh, of T- Donald Trump's, you know, China policy. Uh, so uh, his initial China policy purely focused on trade, trading balance between the two countries. It campaigned on the theme that China exported US. Uh, in trade, China may uh, use, uh, you know, uh, our money or you know American money, referring to the huge trade surplus uh, against the U.S. to fund China's rapid economic growth. China manipulated its currency to gain advantage against the United States, etc., etc., etc. I don't think candidate Trump and and even President Trump in his first two years in office had consistent strategy vis-a-vis China. Uh, this is actually in contrast with the, his Russian policy. Uh, from the very beginning, Donald Trump uh, wanted to uh, improve strategic relations between U.S. and and Russia. Uh, so uh, that's why the you know the Russian gate scandal. Uh, uh, so with regard to China, it was purely on trade, uh, and Donald Trump actually invited Xi Jinping to uh, his mar you know uh, resort. Uh, early on in his administration in April, uh, 2017. Uh, only a few, uh, at that point, only a few state leaders were invited to visit the United States. So uh, they support, support you know, reported they had a good meeting, uh, and uh, Trump uh, said he was honored to meet uh, President Xi. It was a sort of get-to-know-each-other kind of a meeting. They didn't, I don't think they talked substantially about a lot of things. Um, so uh actually a few months later, November 7, 2017, uh Trump uh you know paid a visit to China. Uh and he was well received uh by the Chinese and and uh, by the by President Xi. Uh and uh he, during that trip uh he said uh President Xi was a very respected leader in China, a greatly respected leader in China to use his words. Uh so uh uh and and uh, from that time on, uh President Trump seemed to have a very friendly relationship with President Xi. And he often had lavish kind of praises for President Xi, uh a good friend, you know, um a great leader, um, you know, uh, much respected leader. Uh even during the pandemic, you know, this year, you know, between late January and the er- uh, late February, uh, Trump actually praised President Xi 15 times. We uh, are Twitter, you know, news conferences, whatever. Uh, so um, he said, you know, President Xi's handling of the situation was correct and uh China's handling was, you know, pandemic situation was okay, it was fine. Uh, until of course later when the pandemic reached the US and, and spread widely in the US. Uh, he changed his uh, you know kind of a tune. Uh, and uh uh, it doesn't seem that President Trump really cared a lot about human rights in China. Uh, you know, uh, I think my observation is that he really didn't bother too much with human rights issues in China. Uh, three, uh, cases in point, um, the first one is that if you can believe John Bolton's book, uh, you know, the, the room where it happened uh, in a private meeting with Xi Jinping in G20 meeting in Japan in 2019, that's only last year. Uh, Trump said that she should go ahead with building the camps in Xinjiang, and with uh, Trump's thought was exactly uh, the right thing to do. Uh, when protests started in Hong Kong in June last year, Trump's initial reaction was that he trusted you know, President Xi to handle the situation properly. Uh, was only several months later in November last year, he signed a bill passed overwhelmingly by Congress Uh, in Congress to support Hong Kong uh, protesters. Even in that occasion, on that occasion, he said he signed the law out of respect for President Xi, China, and the people of Hong Kong, in Hong Kong. So the time US and China obviously were in, you know, in this tense negotiation uh, on the first phase of the trade deal. So Trump obviously didn't want to derail the trade bill negotiation because of Hong Kong. Uh, A third case is President Trump delayed Vice President Pence's speech, uh, criticizing China's human rights record on June 4th this year. Uh, June 4th, of course, is the anniversary of the German democracy movement that happened in China in 1989. Trump's fear was that such speech would upset China. So I think President Trump's main concern at the time was about re-election. Uh, he believed, obviously, the trade deal would uh, you know, enhance his chance to be reelected. Uh, in fact, I think the same concern has had driven him to uh, you know, become much more aggressive and antagonistic toward China in recent months. In President Trump's mind, uh, everything was going you know, great uh, before the pandemic spread in the U.S. He survived the impeachment trial the Russian gate kind of affairs were over, the economy was going strong, employment rate was low, uh, record low, stock market record high, uh, no foreign wars uh, his home members were up, and boom, you know, the pandemic happened. So you can imagine he was very, very upset uh, about this. And uh, he was very confident that he would be reelected. It uh, was on his way to a second term, uh, no problem. Uh, but when this, pandemic happened, he was criticized for mishandling the situation, the economy is in a ditch. Uh, So I think he takes everything personally, you know, I think his mind, he he always takes things personally. So he probably, you know, uh, take this fact that the pandemic happened in China initially and spread to the rest of the world very personally. And uh, you know, this uh, thing just ruined his, uh, you know, political future. So. I even kind of a suspect that in his mind, uh, he might suspect the Chinese government did this deliberately just to ruin his you know, re-election you know, chance. Uh, so now he has obviously turned on China and he is you know, trying to punish China. And uh, I want to distinguish between President Trump and the establishment, Washington establishment. Uh, uh, when I talk about, you know, when I mentioned the establishment i am re, referring to uh, you know the state department defense department CIA uh the republicans in, in u s Congress and those people have really regarded China as a major threat long before this uh, and uh, uh, I think probably Trump was really in you know, kind of resisting this push to treat China as a major threat until just recently so recently obviously the you know the State, uh, you know, Secretary of State, uh, National Security Advisor, CIA head, uh, head of CIA, um, uh, uh, Defense Department Secretary, uh, even Secretary of, you know, Human uh, Health and Services came out with very strong statements on China, and uh, this is obviously, you know, kind of, you know, kind of a of the of the anger and frustration uh, over China. So, what has uh, you know the Trump administration done with regard to China lately? Uh, quite a quite a few things, actually. Most of the actions uh, are unprecedented, you know, such as sending two aircraft carrier uh, battle groups to South China Sea, building a military alliance to contain Chinese aggressive actions in the East and South China Seas in our region, uh, upgrading political and military relations with Taiwan, uh, closing Chinese consulate in Houston. Uh, scrutinizing scholars and students from China, threatening to ban members of Chinese Communist Party and their families uh, from visiting the United States, threatening to close operations of TikTok and WeChat in the United States and all Confucius Institutes in the US, Uh, sanctioning high-ranking Chinese officials, including high-ranking officials in Hong Kong, withdrawing special trade status of Hong Kong, blacklisting and sanctioning Chinese companies Restricting Chinese journalists, uh, and the, the list goes on and on. It seems that the U.S.-China relationship under the Trump administration has really reached a point of no return. Now, let's talk about Biden's China policy. Uh, actually, New York Times just, you know, a few days ago uh, published a very good piece tracing Biden's stand on China policy. You know, attitudes toward China, uh, beginning with a, you know, like uh, 40 years ago. When he was a junior senator from Delaware, uh, he visited China for the first time in 1979, actually, the first uh, US congressional delegation to visit China since 1949. So he met with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, another important trip he took was 2001. Uh, he led a, a congressional delegation uh, as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, uh, it's a very powerful position. Uh, so he uh, visited China and met with uh, then top Chinese leader, Jiang Zemin, had an in-depth discussion about, you know, U.S.-China relations. Actually, Biden was a very, uh, you know, um, instrumental or facilitator in getting China into WTO. So, China, uh, you know, uh, and also I also should point out that uh, Biden has had a very kind of a close relationship with Xi Jinping. Uh, In 2011, 2012, when Xi Jinping was already the apparent successor to Hu Jintao, uh, you know, a designated successor to Hu Jintao, the top leadership position in China, uh, uh, President Obama designated Biden to get to know Xi Jinping. And because Xi Jinping at the time was vice president of China, and, and of course Biden was vice president of the United States. So they actually met within like a two, one year, two year period, they met eight times. Uh, Biden visited China, and Xi Jinping came to the US to visit as vice president. And um, so uh, uh, so they actually kind of, uh, at the time, at the, you know, had a very close relationship. Uh, so definitely Biden was in the camp of the engagement. He was hoping obviously you know, democracy, civil rights, you know, uh, human rights would you know, materialize in China. Uh, as late as in May 2019, this is the last year, on a campaign trail, uh, he said, I quote, uh, China is going to eat our lunch? Come on, man. Uh, China is not competition for us. So he, he, he didn't change even until like uh, last year. But uh, but everything has changed since then. Then uh, I think that you know now he calls Xi Jinping a thug, uh, and uh, he uh, clearly supports uh, you know the sanctions of Chinese officials, uh, and uh, for human rights violations, he supports pushing back on China's unfair trade practices, intellectual property thefts. Uh, he's in favor of reinforcing the U.S. as a, a specific power by increasing U.S. military. Uh, naval presence in the you know Pacific, Asian Pacific region, he said he will use the federal government's purchasing power to bring manufacturing of critical goods such as PPEs and pharmaceuticals to American homeland. Uh, so on many positions, he is very similar to uh, to Trump right now. Uh, so I don't see a lot of differences between the two people uh, with regard to their respective policies over China. Uh, if Trump is re- is reelected, uh, I see very few areas these two countries could cooperate. Uh, in fact, the bi- bilateral relations might get worse before you know they get better. Uh, I'm, I'm you know I'm not putting any ju- value judgment in this. Uh, you know uh, either you know deterioration of the relationship is good or bad. I don't you know I, I'm not putting any judgment or not uh, on this uh, you know uh, deterioration. It might be good, might be bad. Um, on the other hand, I think if Biden is elect- elected, I can see a few areas the two countries might be able to cooperate. Uh, according to Biden himself, he thinks the United States and China could cooperate in areas such as climate change, uh, health services, uh, health security, and nuclear non-proliferation, referring, I think, uh, to particularly Iran and North Korea. I can see the possibility of cooperation in these areas, um, but I don't think they will mean a lot. Uh, in terms of climate change, both China and U.S. signed the Paris uh, you know, uh, Climate Change Accord. Trump obviously withdraw the U.S. from the accord. Uh, so I, I can see easily that Biden would rejo- rejoin you know, this uh, uh, agreement. Uh, I should say here that uh, China signed the agreement out of its own national interest or its own nat- its own interest. Uh, China is not doing a favor to the rest of the world. Uh, you know, when they signed this you know, uh, uh, Paris Cl- Climate Change Treaty, the Chinese cover- uh, government has really taken a number of serious actions, policies against air pollution, out of concern with state regime stability because air pollution in China, you know, has improved somewhat in this next, last few years, but it was really bad a few years back. And uh, people were complaining, uh, people breath kind of like a bad air when they step out of their house or apartment. And so it was really, uh, you know, uh, um, a legitimacy issue for the Chinese government. They had to improve this, you know, to, to kind of uh, to improve their legitimacy. And people were complaining so much. So I think they, they did, I mean, you don't hear, hear Chinese officials or Chinese media talking about climate change, so to speak. It was was really, a you know, a bad air situation, you know, pollution problem in China. So I I, I don't think, you know, China would have any hesitation in, you know, in doing more, in improving its environment. Uh, with regard to the uh, uh, health uh, security, uh, to be honest, be, this is about coronavirus. I think, and uh, uh, just imagine what if China is the country who first succeeded in finding the vaccine uh, because they have two vaccines that have been kind of in the second state now I think going into the third uh, stage of whatever experiment. And uh, according to their report, they're very effective. And uh, what if they found this thing first and there's obviously there's a kind of a race in just sort of like, a, you know, in the battlefield right now is finding this vaccine. Uh, uh, so uh, I think in the Biden administration, I think uh, he would be open to accept some kind of help from the Chinese government uh, in, in introducing this vaccine or, or whatever, buying the vaccine, vaccine from uh, China. But in the Trump administration, I I don't know. I mean, I don't think he will, you know, he would consider this a loss of faith, loss of prestige of the United States. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Chinese government will use this as a weapon. I don't have any question about that. Uh, Chinese government would use this vaccine as a possible diplomatic weapon to improve its image and its influence around the world. Uh, so, uh, so I, you know, I, I, so I think, you know, in that area, I think the Biden administration would be happy to some have some kind of cooperation with China. Now with regard to nuclear proliferation, um, uh, of course, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh President Trump withdraw from the nuclear treaty with Iran. Uh, so I think Biden would probably revive that treaty. Uh, China would have, have no quarrel about that at all. I mean, that's obviously, you know, in Chinese interest. And uh,
1: Professor, we might, we might wanna
2: shift okay, I, with the- am I'm, I'm, I'm just one or two minutes, I'll, I'll okay. be done. Uh, I think overall, my prediction is that uh, this adversarial relationship with China is not gonna end either way. Uh, I don't think Biden's gonna change this you know, relationship fundamentally, uh, it's, it's really structural in my view, uh, due to the huge differences. Ideological differences between the two countries, also the fact that China is getting stronger and stronger, not only you know economically but militarily. And China is the only country that can challenge American supremacy domination in the world. So, I, I, for these two reasons, I think this uh, relationship. Is, I don't really have very optimistic view on this relationship. And uh, but if we can talk about the you know the other stuff you know uh, in the Q and A. Uh, uh, section. Thank you.
1: Absolutely. It. Thank you, Professor. And I know you were about to go into like nuclear proliferation. I think we'll have a lot of uh, discussion on that probably with Bonnie and security as sure, well as the sure. QA. So I think we'll have a good back and forth there. Um, but thank you for that overview. And as you had mentioned, there has been a considerable shift um, from amiability to hostility uh, in U.S.-China relations, and and really with all of the multiple actions that you outlined in terms of unprecedented U.S. action towards China. Um, I think it. I think no one would equivocate that we appear to stand at a precipice here, and that in U.S.-China relations, and therefore all of those. Of you who are watching, um, that's why it's all the more important for us to inform ourselves before we go to the polls um, on these issues and on uh, U.S. foreign policy in both areas. Um, So getting into the details of all the confrontation, because as uh, the professor mentioned, confrontation does seem to characterize relations and it doesn't seem to be the case that that's going to change um, here in the immediate future. So with that in mind, we want to go forward and look at the details of these areas of confrontation. Uh, We have John Scanepico here, who is going to be discussing specifically economic relations between the US and China, uh, the trade war, everything that that entails, um, investment, trade, uh, tariffs, all of that. So John, if you want to give us some details there uh, and distinguish the two candidates in those areas.
3: Sure, um, that's a lot of stuff to cover in just a little bit of time, so I'm going to hit some kind of high points. You know, I, I do agree with uh, Dr. Zhang on the uh, the engagement. I think policy that the U.S. has followed for 40 years. You know, the hope being that by supporting the growth of the economy. And as that standard of living would increase, that China would adopt what I'll call more Western-style um, democracy, or principles of democracy and, and capitalism and other things, I, I guess, that we um, uh, find synonymous with you know, Western uh, democracy. Um, but um, the Trump administration uh, literally made, in my opinion, a 180 uh, when they came into office. And and I think, you know, you have to look at, this is a complicated situation because on the one hand, China is our biggest competitor globally in all areas that we're going to discuss today. And then some, but at the same time, they're also one of our biggest, I say, I don't even customer, but trading partner. I mean, we rely on them. They rely on us. Um, they need us, they need to sell their widgets to us so they can get foreign currency to then go out and buy the resources that they lack, because China is woefully under-resourced with a huge population. In order to keep that machine moving, they have to do this. And so we really need each other, and this is very different from, say, the USSR, US you know, a dynamic that I remember growing up with as a kid, you know, they were our enemy. But I, if we traded one penny with them, I'd, I'd, I'd be surprised. So there was no economic relationship. So here it becomes very, very complicated as to how do you do all the things that we want to have done. But at the same time, we've got to be maintain some relationship because we rely on, um, you know, them. I have clients every day that call me about drafting a new agreement to go into China, to make more investment in China just as maybe not even as often as I have some saying, hey, I want to come out of China. So we look at it, you know, you look at the Trump administration, and I think he was correct in identifying, the administration was correct in identifying the various structural issues that we have with China, you know, the forced technology transfers, the, the intellectual property theft, you know, the subsidies that go to the companies, the, the idea that China is now picking, you know, winners within its state-owned enterprises to then champion and become these global uh, champions. I think those are all big issues that we have to address. But it seemed like, though, then the administration pivoted, because I think this is what the president does, and he focuses on the deficit, the trade deficit. Somehow that is the measure because again i think he looks at most things as a zero sum game i'm winning or i'm losing and with the trade deficit he says if i have a deficit with you i must be losing the us must be losing and so a lot of the focus i think you know goes to that and a lot of i think if you look at the actions that he's taken i think all focus on a lot of this this idea of a trade deficit and you know we'll talk about it in just a second but the phase 1 deal we did with china you know really didn't talk a lot about those issues that of the structural nature, but they focus more on the you know the idea that China is going to buy more you know from us as a way maybe to get that you know that, that that deficit down so if you look at what the administration has done, say over the last four years, and you can't just focus on just what it's done to China, you have to look at what it's done in the world because I think they're, they're all related in some way. You know, we redid a bunch of trade agreements. So we redid Korea, although there really wasn't a whole lot done there. We had steel and aluminum quotas, and we got some more uh, auto imports, even though we really weren't even close to the, the quota that we had to begin with. Redid NAFTA uh, with USMCA. Um, that took a lot from the text of TPP, the Trans Pacific Partnership, that had been previously negotiated. Then, of course, the administration immediately withdrew from it when they they came into office. You also had just recently a limited uh, trade agreement with Japan, but again, that was very limited. You know, to get Japan to the table, I agree, I won't talk about certain things, so it was very limited what they did. A lot of that again was taken from TPP, but even the agricultural concessions that they got, the allocations they got were a lot less because most of the allocation already had already been given out you know in in, the T, in what became CPTPP when the other nations went ahead without us. And then, of course, a very limited agreement. I You know, I'm from New England, so anytime you can sell more lobsters to the EU, I'm happy. And so that was a, a recent deal they did there. And then, of course, his big arrangement with China has been tariffs and then um, sanctions we'll talk about, and then, of course, this this phase one uh, trade deal. And on the tariffs, you have your, your aluminum and steel tariffs under Section 232, and then you have your 301 uh, tariffs um, that really covered – well, I guess when they were at List uh, 3A and B, we we're almost at uh, maybe about 80 percent, I think, of all goods uh, you know traded between the country, imported from China. List four would have gotten us all the way, and then when they signed this deal, the List four went away, and um, you know, and they reduced some tariffs. But I think those tariffs now cover about like 90 percent or so of all the components, so all the stuff we use to make other stuff. Um, and then only about 70% of the consumer goods um, are, are still covered. But that's kind of where we were in the idea, I think with the administration from people I've talked to and what I've read and, and, and the rest, is that by putting these tariffs on uh, the imports, that will you know, somehow uh, decrease our trade deficit, but also put pressure on China then to come to the table and then work on some of these other issues Again, it brought them to the table, I guess, to do this, what became known as the phase one deal, but, you know, that was to uh, China committed to purchase about 200 billion worth of products, you know, from the U.S. over a two-year period, Um, but really in a lot of cases, that was just going to get us back to even because the tariffs had been imposed since uh, the summer of 2018, especially if you look at the agricultural uh, issues, because then China immediately obviously retaliated with tariffs. Um, and our you know our, our agricultural exports to China went you know down to almost nothing, and so again, you look at the 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 what, where we were and what he 's done you 've got now the situation where I think as Professor Zhang really noted, I mean they barely speak it seems like, and it seems to be going getting worse and worse with the current administration, and all he seems to know is i 'll just put more tariffs in place well, you know pretty soon we 're going to run out of things to tariff. Um, we have now, if you look at on the investment side, um, you know we have the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States (CFIUS). A lot of Chinese investment, state-sponsored investment in U.S. companies, either to acquire them or to license uh, uh, much-needed technology. So we, uh, in August, I guess now of. 19 or 18, I don't know, time seemed to fly, uh, they passed the um, Firma, or the Foreign Risk uh, Review Modernization Act, and that expanded the scope of CFIUS, while, you know, most people really didn't come out and say this, others did, that it was directed at China, and it really expanded that scope of the committee now to review what used to be only uh, if Chinese companies, say, or any foreign company was going to take controlling investment in a U.S. company Now they expanded it to include in certain non-controlling investments. And it was a big focus on technology, you know, what they called critical technology, foundational technology, emerging technology, and all these definitions are still being worked out by, you know, our side. But the idea was to then really watch what China was investing in and then possibly uh, restricting that. I mean, I, uh, you know, we work on deals all the time and especially with our Chinese clients, it's we really on the front end now, walk through a whole CFIUS analysis just so they know what the risk is of whether that transaction will be ultimately um, found to not involve national security risks or unresolved national security risks. So you also have within FIRMA an increase in export controls, again, looking at where the US companies were exporting technology. And so with China now, you've seen even uh, recently, even some more changes. So it used to be, I'd ask, okay, where's this going? Who's it going to? Well, it's going to ABC company in China. Well, now you have to even get beyond that and really start looking at, um, you know, the end user, the end use beyond more of what the, you know, your, your customer, because now the uh, Chinese government and the Chinese military have such close relations with a lot of Chinese companies. So again, you're starting to see a lot more restrictions on what U.S. companies can do and where they can sell. You're seeing this now also in like the uh, semiconductor. You know, uh, China has expressed a lot of interest in developing its own chips, um, recognizing the tensions with the United States and with other countries and sanctions that, um, but the U.S. apparently, even though we don't make the chips as much anymore, we apparently make the best machines that make the chips. And so you have now a lot of restrictions on these companies that are, and I, I've been told this was coming a lot from the Defense Department on restricting the sale of these uh, machines. Well, that really impacts U.S. business significantly because that's the market. You know, the market was Asia, it was China, and so now this is really going to put a lot of pressure on a lot of those U.S. companies if it further, you know, continues to restrict their ability to, to uh, you know, to 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 sell. We've also seen now. Um, with also with sanctions. Um, I know people will talk about so I'm just going to kind of highlight some of this, but you know uh, blacklisting Huawei and other uh, 5G companies. We've seen uh, also new sanctions recently um, with cotton producers and tomato producers um, coming out of Jiang Jiang province, uh, you know, for the treatment of the Uyghurs. Um, You've seen other prior sanctions against companies that provided the uh, surveillance, you know, the video surveillance, CCTV uh, surveillance that's used in the province and, and that participated in the confinement. So you're seeing a lot of these sanctions. As Professor Zhang mentioned, we we also have withdrawn Hong Kong special status, which then really, as a as a tool against China, really doesn't do much uh, to China, but it hurts U.S. businesses in Hong Kong as well as in um, uh, as well as U.S. Uh, as, as well as Hong Kong businesses you know, for for what's going on. So, you know, and, and, and there are others too. I mean, and the goal being to decouple U.S. from China. I mean, that's the goal. I just don't know how these, how really that's going to happen because we are so intertwined in our business relationships now. I just don't really see that happening. I don't really think that's in the best interest of the United States either. Now, I'm not saying we still do business and, and, and all that as a way to condone let 's say some of the I know human rights abuses that I know Jeremy will talk about and some of the other national security issues that i 'm sure is going to talk about later, but but we are so interdependent with each other that we really do need each other we 've got to figure out a way that maybe we, we can compete on the one hand and collaborate on the other and I think that is a big difference in uh, some of the policies of say President Trump and his reelection and what we 're likely to see. In four years, if he gets reelected, and also with uh, uh, Vice President Biden, if he gets elected, I think we're going to see more compete and collaborate with the Biden camp than we will with the um, with the uh, Trump camp. But you know, in looking at China and, and the U.S. policy, you know, we've had this whole America First that comes from President Trump. We hear it a lot, and that has seemed to then translate into America alone. Because, and as I said earlier, when I first started talking with U.S. policy, how we have then even interacted with our allies on trade issues with, you know, the 232 steel and aluminum tariffs with a lot of our allies, our fight with the EU over Airbus, uh, and Boeing, that that dispute, and some of our other allies around. I mean, you know, Canada just, you know, in the U.S. and Mexico just did, entered into the USMCA, but, you know, what, several months later now we've imposed – uh, steel and aluminum tariffs again on Canada. And so as a result, it's alienated a lot of our friends, friends that we probably could use in that, that I'll say on the confrontation side of our relationship with China but we really don't have them as friends really. And I think, again, that's going to be a big, um, you know, a, a big difference. And what it's doing is now, it is, it is incentivizing, I believe China, Russia and our allies to decouple from the United States in the long term can't trust the United States, we're not a good trading partner. So as a result, now you're starting to see these other countries enter into free trade agreements without us. I mean, TPP is a perfect example um, where they took up that mantle, Japan took up the mantle and got it across the finish line without us, I think surprising many in the United States. And you're seeing other situations where countries now are acting without us. And that is, I think, problematic long-term, and I think it also hurts our ability to confront a country like China that has the economy of the size of China and that will continue to grow um, uh, you know, over, o- over time. So that's kind of, I think, where we are. I think it's, it's exactly like uh, Dr. Zhang mentioned, it's one of confrontation, uh, sanctions, um, and tariffs. I think you know, it's, this, it's the stick, lots of stick, not many carrots. Um, whereas I think we used to be more carrot and maybe we didn't have much stick, um, before. So with, with the Trump campaign, again, it's, it's, you know, there's not a whole lot being said. I mean, we've got his bullet points and then you've got a lot of what he says on the, on, you know, on the stump. He still talks about like everybody wants fair, you know, enact fair trade deals. Um, he's got some made in America, uh, tax credits, again, trying to reshore manufacturing, uh, especially from China back to um, you know, the United States. But, again, they're unspecified as to how they'll do it. And now they focus on a couple of industries that I've seen mentioned, pharmaceutical and robotics. But they really, there's not a whole lot of details of how that would really be implemented. Um, again, you've got tariffs, because uh, it seems to like tariffs. So they're talking about tariffs on companies that do not move jobs back to the U.S., so, and I think this is a big difference between the Trump camp and the Biden camp. So, whereas the president looks at any company that leaves the United States to go somewhere else, whether it's Europe, Africa, South America, or China, um, he wants to tax or tariff whatever they're doing. Because he sees that as, uh, I guess, unpatriotic in some way. And I think the Biden camp makes a distinction between those companies that are leaving the United States, say, for example, and manufacturing in China because they want to access the China market. Or maybe they want to access the Asian market. But they're not necessarily going to China to manufacture their products to then bring them back to the United States for sale that's where I think the the Biden camp will be looking to maybe impose tariffs or some sort of tax but I think as a way to and maybe incentivize uh, them to you know come back so if you look at then the 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 Biden camp I agree with Dr. Zhang as well I think that China is because now it's the only thing that has bipartisan support is we don't like China so I I agree I think he's somewhat uh, uh, limited in what he can do Um, I think you will see the 232 tariffs hopefully kind of drift away over time. I think the tariffs, the China tariffs that Trump has put in place while he criticizes them, I think he's stuck with them because that really is the only leverage that he has maybe to negotiate on the collaboration piece or to try to get them to move on the trade side. I also think you'll see the Biden administration Uh, reach out and do more bilateral approach, not the America alone, but more of a a, a multilateral approach. And so I think he will try to repair all of these relationships that have become frayed or damaged in the Trump administration in Europe and other places, bringing then those countries together to then develop a a policy then that can be used to confront, uh, to deal with China. Because in the past, China seems to respond better when they're getting pressure from multiple kind of points, multiple points than just say um, the, uh, the, the, the the US. So again, the Biden camp has very similar policies though on trying to reshore and create more jobs here in, in the United States. But I think whoever gets, I think if Trump gets elected, you're gonna see more of the same, more harsh you know, uh, approach. I think with the Biden camp, you're gonna see more of that cooperation, collaboration, but also recognizing that we're com- competitors. Um, and i think that's where i think we'll, we'll we'll do a lot better so sorry there's a lot to unfortunately there's, there's a whole lot to cover <laughs> there is for all a lot to
1: cover <laughs> so. absolutely on all of these topics we could spend yep. i mean uh, a lot I know, of a whole <laughs> days <laughs> but yep. thank you john and i know people are going no, to have you. questions so we can kind of uh, keep keep discussing these issues as people have uh, questions. But on the point about uh, more stick and less carrot, I don't think there's a better segue for security, um, sadly, because I do not think that that is an area of a lot of cooperation. So Bonnie, without further ado, I'll go ahead and lend it over to you to discuss um, our security relations with China.
4: Well, thank you, uh, Susan and and Pat and the Tennessee World Affairs uh, Council for inviting me to join the panel today. Uh, I'm really going to focus on two security issues in particular and sort of dig down in deep into them. I think that uh, the real flashpoints uh, between the United States and China that could escalate to war uh, are Taiwan and the South China Sea. Um, and so uh, I'm going to uh, talk about uh, those two issues, uh, an, an accident or maybe a deliberate military action, Uh, could, in fact, uh, escalate to a wider war. We did see in 2001 a collision between a Chinese fighter pilot and a U.S. reconnaissance plane uh, that really did lead to a a political crisis, Uh, and I think that we have even less ability today uh, to manage that kind uh, of uh, of crisis. So first I want to talk a little bit about why uh, the United States thinks Taiwan is important. Um, It is is certainly important to the United States uh, because it shares our values, Uh, and uh, I think that the first half of this century is going to be defined by a systemic competition between the democratic market-based values that are championed by the United States and uh, its allies and uh, countries around the world and and of the authoritarian state-led economy that is advanced uh, by Beijing. And Taiwan really sits at the front line of this rivalry. It's, it's the target of Beijing's most sophisticated tools of uh, political and cyber interference as well as economic coercion. Uh, the future of Taiwan is important overall to the geopolitics of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, if if I have the ability to give you a map, I would show you that it it sits in the middle of what is often referred to as the first island chain. It stretches from Japan to the... Philippines to the South China Sea and uh, successful coercion of Taiwan would really shatter the confidence that U.S. allies would have in U.S. security guarantees uh, and in the credibility of what we've long long called the hub and spokes network of U.S. alliances in the region uh, that for seven decades has maintained um, the Pacific Ocean as a barrier against threats to our own security here in, uh, in the United States. So this is not just an issue of uh, whether China integrates uh, Taiwan into the People's Republic, uh, but it has much broader implications. And then finally, um, uh, just to um, pick up on some of the points that uh, John made in the economic sphere, the future of Taiwan is very important to US economic competitiveness and prosperity. Um, it, it's actually now the United States' ninth largest trading partner um, in in the first half of this year. Uh, But really more importantly, it's one of the world's most advanced producers of semiconductors, uh, along with, of course, Japan and Korea and the US. Um, It's a key link in global supply chains and a close alignment of uh, Taiwanese high-tech firms with the US would really enhance uh, secure supply chains in the transition to 5G, to the internet of things, Uh, that are going to define prosperity in the 21st century. If these fall under Chinese control, uh, then that is going to pose uh, challenges, I think, uh, for the United States. So tensions between Taiwan and uh, the PRC were uh, were pretty low during the Obama administration when Taiwan's uh, president pursued a policy that prioritized improving uh, relations with China. In 2016, the people in Taiwan uh, elected a president who's from the pro-independence party that's called the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP. And uh, since then, and particularly since the president's re-election, her name is Tsai Ing-wen, and uh, so she was re-elected just this past January, and Beijing has really began to ramp up military, diplomatic, and economic uh, pressure. There's been uh, many moves by the US Congress uh, in recent years, uh, as well as the executive branch, uh, to support Taiwan. And in fact, just before Trump was inaugurated, uh, he actually had a call with Taiwan's uh, president. That was really unprecedented. And uh, it led to a stern response from uh, China, which warned that really there, there wasn't going to be any discussion between the US and China on any issue until Trump reaffirmed what we call the One China. Uh, policy. Um, and uh, and he subsequently did that. Uh, but some of the congressional legislation has included, included the Taiwan Travel Act, which was aimed at raising the level of officials that can travel to each side's capital. There was another uh, law that was passed called the Taipei Act, which calls for stronger U.S. support for Taiwan's participation in key international organizations. And Taiwan used to be an observer um, uh, to the uh, governing body of the World Health Organization uh, but uh, China has blocked its uh, its ability to stay as an observer and uh, so even though Taiwan has been exemplary in controlling the spread of the pandemic um, it is completely excluded from uh, the World Health Organization's uh, you should be a, 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 a invited to technical meetings and things like that and that's um, you know virtually come to a halt um, of course, Taiwan is con- has continued to be the recipient of arms sales from the United States. The 1979 Taiwan Relations Act requires the United States to sell defensive arms uh, to Taiwan. A-, a few other things that the Trump administration has done to support Taiwan has been to um, do things for Taiwan more publicly in some cases than prior administrations. So transits by the US Navy through the Taiwan Strait are now publicly announced. They took place before, but they weren't made public. Uh, Taiwan was described as an important partner country in a Defense Department report that's about the free and open Indo-Pacific. And there was a visit to the White House by Taiwan's national security advisor at the invitation of John Bolton, um, and that was made public. So we've seen a lot of efforts by the Trump administration uh, to really highlight the importance of Taiwan. Most recently, the Health and Human Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, uh, visited Taiwan. Uh, That was not actually setting a new precedent in 2014. We had a cabinet level uh, official from the US go to Taiwan and it was actually quite common. Um, in, the, uh, in the very early 2000s and in the 1990s for cabinet secretaries uh, to visit. Uh, so um, I, I, would, I would say in the economic sphere, the Trump administration has really fallen short. There's been no trade or economic dialogue with Taiwan whatsoever. I think that's because the president uh, has a, attached priority to trade talks with China, and that meant that he did not want to um, risk... What he might achieve with uh, China by starting uh, talks with Taiwan. There are also other issues that have been barriers, uh, but recently there's been some movement forward that has to do with opening up the market in Taiwan for U.S. exports of uh, beef and and pork. Um, So I would uh, close on this issue of Taiwan by saying that um, I think a Biden administration would also strongly support Taiwan's democracy. Uh, uh, as, as president, if elected, I think Biden would certainly sell arms to Taiwan. He would try to help Taiwan regain its observer status and the WHO. And he would work with Taiwan on global health and cybersecurity and other issues. Um, cooperation in sensitive areas um, relating to defense would probably continue, but I think would be kept more quiet, um, far less public than the Trump administration. I think a Biden administration overall would be more cautious to avoid provoking China. Uh, And I think that would be a difference. Um, And Biden would probably uh, be more likely to actively encourage the resumption of cross strait dialogue between Beijing and Taipei that has been um, absent uh, since uh, Tsai Ing-wen was first elected in 2016. So then a few points about the South China Sea. Um, Again, I wish I had a map. The South China Sea is huge. It is the largest sea body after the five oceans. Um, There are over, oh, somebody's got a map for me. That's so cool. There are over 250 reefs, atolls, and shoals, and virtually the entire maritime area in the South China Sea, as well as all the land features, are disputed among uh, the six claimants. So the six claimants are China, Taiwan, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Brunei. And China's claim is the biggest. It's often depicted as a nine-dash line that encompasses about 90% of the South China Sea. Um, Work that my team has done um, has demonstrated that about $3.4 trillion in goods passes through the South China Sea annually. Of course, all countries have an interest in unimpeded commerce, Uh, and the preservation of peace and stability, including China. Um, But what else is is at stake? Um, Clearly the ownership of those those rocks and shoals and caves, the maritime entitlements, uh, they're each probably entitled to no more than 12 nautical mile territorial sea uh, because of a ruling that found that uh, none of those land features can have a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. There's a significant amount of oil and gas. Um, This is particularly important for the Philippines, Malaysia, and Vietnam. Uh, There's fish stocks uh, that are very plentiful. Uh, There's the issue of freedom of navigation, which I'll talk about in a second, um, for military vessels. Uh, There's the exclusive rights of countries to the resources within their EEZs that extend from their coastlines. Um, And then there's the larger issue of the rules-based order and international law, So in 2015 and 16, China dredged and made these tiny reefs into huge islands, which they then transformed into military bases. Um, And uh, a tribunal that was formed under the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea found in uh, July of 2016 that this nine-dash line claim is actually not legal, and China has no basis to claim resources that are inside other countries' exclusive economic zones. So Beijing rejected the ruling um, and uh, did not take any actions to really bring its policies in line with it. And then in response to these excessive maritime claims under the Obama administration, US Navy ships were dispatched to conduct freedom of navigation operations. We call them fanouts. And the Trump administration increased those operations. Uh, China has viewed some of the US Navy's actions as aggressive. They have tried to even, in one case, interfere with one of the operations and came within um, uh, just a few hundred uh, uh, feet of a U.S. Navy destroyer, which was really potentially quite uh, dangerous. Both the U.S. and China have conducted major military exercises in the South China Sea. Um, uh, Dr. Zhong just mentioned that uh, the U.S. had two-carrier battle groups there for the past month. That was actually not unprecedented. It's just the first time since 2014 that we've had a simultaneous uh, two-carrier operation in the South China Sea. And China just fired missiles into those waters, testing even its so-called carrier-killer missile, which is the DF-21D. So it's very difficult to estimate what, if anything, the Biden administration really would do interesting. This is a very tough problem. China has, to some extent, already changed the status quo in its favor, but it does seek to further strengthen its control over all the waters and potentially the land features. And it is really determined to prevent any activities by neighboring countries that challenge Chinese sovereignty. So the Trump administration has been actually very vocally supportive and in standing up for the rights of these countries. And if the United States doesn't do that, then these countries will accommodate to China, even though they want to preserve their own independence. So I think that the Biden administration would attach um, great importance to international law, even more than the Trump administration has, Um, uh, Biden might even try to get Congress to support the United States becoming a signatory to the Law of the Sea Convention. Um, uh, And the Democrats would have to gain the upper hand in both houses in order to achieve that. Uh, But this is something that I think would be very important. Uh, Biden would be sensitive to the possible charge of being weak in the face of Chinese bullying since he was vice president when the dredging and militarization took place. Um, And Obama was accused of uh, doing too little to prevent it. So my last two sentences, I just want to quickly highlight a few other issues that are important to pay attention to um, in the area of security. Uh, China's civil-military fusion program, where uh, they are uh, trying to create a a very smooth transition or ability to transfer technology from the civilian to the military sector. how we respond to China's growing missile threat in the, in the uh, Asia Pacific region, the US has withdrawn from the International Nuclear Forces um, Agreement, the INF Treaty, and uh, Ch- China has the largest missile inventory in the world, and 95% of that inventory is in the range of what had been banned by the INF Treaty, uh, and uh, the Trump administration wants to include China in arms control talks, but I think that's going to be very difficult to achieve. So that'll be a challenge for Biden if he is elected as well. And then there's China's role in the Korean Peninsula, uh, which is something else that I think is important to pay pay attention to going forward. Korea is going to come back to bite us in the next administration. Uh, Kim Jong-un is not going to be quiet for much longer in my view. And then finally would be the Belt and Road Initiative and how the U.S. should respond to that. So I'll stop here and uh, happy to take questions.
1: Thank you, Bonnie, very much. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and in the time remaining, we're gonna to pivot to uh, Jeremy to give us an overview of human rights before entering Q&A. Thanks, Jeremy.
5: Okay, I'll be brief. Um, first of all, I do agree with all the panelists that uh, the only, only thing there is bipartisan consensus on at the moment in the United States is that we need to be tough on China. Um, and uh, I just, may I quote from a Wall Street Journal article today, Uh, quoting Kurt Campbell, the top Asia official in the Obama State Department and now a senior advisor to the Biden campaign, he said, I think there is broad recognition in the Democratic Party that Trump was largely accurate in diagnosing China's predatory practices. And uh, by that, I think he's referring to everything from the South China Sea to, uh, you know, business and trade problems. Um, So I don't think a Biden administration will mean that we suddenly have a sunny relationship with China, and everything is great and it goes back to the way it was uh, ten years ago or even five years ago uh, um, um, but um, what i do I do think is important is that what we are seeing in the last uh, particularly in the last few months is a almost a sledgehammer approach. I edit a daily newsletter about China news, and um, for the last Few months uh, the newsletter goes out at about 5 p.m uh central time 6 p.m eastern time and for the last few months the last couple of hours of the day have been terrifying because me and my colleagues are like what is Pompeo gonna announce at 4 p.m that we're gonna suddenly have to c- cover or what is Trump gonna say or tweet at 4 p.m that we're gonna suddenly have to cover and it feels like that the um Uh, despite the fact that the United States has many, many, many legitimate grievances with China, it feels to me like that the approach to China is very much, let's bash them, slap them in the face. Um, There's not a lot of considered uh, action. Uh, A very concrete example, just in the last 24 hours, news has come out that uh, about a 1,000 Chinese students at US universities have had their visas canceled because they allegedly have ties to the People's Liberation Army. Uh, and this has been established because they studied at universities and even high schools. Some of them even never went to university in, in China. They came for their undergraduate degree to the United States. Uh, they went to high schools or universities that had some kind of relationship with the People's Liberation Army. Anyone who's been in China for longer than about three weeks knows that the People's Liberation Army is everywhere. And they have their fingers in all kinds of things. And just because a student went to the Beijing Post and Telecommunications University does not mean that they're a spy. But now we're kicking these people out. And what are we doing in the United States? We are causing a Chinese brain drain. The most talented immigrants, the most talented artificial intelligence engineers, the most talented people are no longer going to want to come here because of these uh, fairly brutish actions. That many of them seem um, designed. Uh, it's sort of like a macho thing, you know. Mike Pompeo makes these statements. We're not going to take it anymore. So does Trump. So I would hope, and from what I've read, I would, I believe that a Biden administration. It's not that our relationship with China is going to get suddenly much easier, or that there will be less complexity, or you know difficulties it's still going to be very difficult Um, but they seem to be a little bit more thoughtful about the approach to China the people around him the people advising him in contrast with you know one of his top China trade guys is the economist Peter Navarro who previously was an obscure figure almost a crackpot uh making um sensationalist videos uh and writing books in which he quotes himself uh, using an anagram of his name. These are the type of people currently driving the, the China um, policy of the Trump administration. So I don't know if the Biden administration will be better, but I'm pretty sure that there will be fewer whack jobs behind it and that there will be a little bit more thought behind it. And I'm, I'm sorry if that sounds too partisan, but I, I, I don't believe that if you look at the, um, the reality of what's been going on, I don't think that you can deny uh, that the way the administration is dealing with China is um, a sort of a, an approach of uh, very strong rhetoric and brute force that is often applied in the wrong places. Um, and then just to finish off to talk about human rights, which is what uh, we promised I will talk about, is. Um, For people who uh, in the audience who may not be aware, there are many, many human rights issues in China. Of course, there have been, you know, ever since 1949 when the Communist Party took over. Uh, But in many ways, the last uh, eight to ten years, uh, particularly since uh, Xi Jinping became top leader, uh, have... um, seen an acceleration of some pretty appalling practices. So you have more than a million Uyghurs, mostly Muslim ethnic minority in Western China, in internment camps uh, that are uh, supposed to re-educate them to not be extremists, but uh, that uh, are essentially concentration camps. Um, You have people like the professor at, at Tsinghua University, which is often called China's MIT, a law constitutional law professor named Xu Jiang-run who is being hounded and um, uh, detained on trumped up charges by the police basically because he's been writing essays uh, criticizing Xi Jinping. Um, You have the crackdown in Hong Kong where um, uh, Hong Kong was promised 50 years of autonomy from 1997, the so-called one country, two systems uh, concept. And now you have the central government essentially mandating very um, restrictive policies in terms of education, Uh, the freedom of the media is being seriously impinged on, foreign journalists are being denied visas or kicked out, Uh, local media companies that are critical of the the Chinese government are being harassed in various ways, Uh, politicians who do not agree with Uh, the Chinese central government are being harassed and basically run out of the Legislative Council, uh, which is the the governing body. Um, uh, And these kinds of abuses, I I mean, I could go on for hours. Um, There's a lot of them going on. These are are serious issues, and I don't think these are issues that the United States should um, stay silent on. However, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party has never actually responded very uh, uh, positively uh, to pressure on human rights. Uh, That just hasn't happened, you know, going back to 1949. The Chinese Communist Party is not very receptive to foreign criticism uh, of what it's doing. But what I would say is that when China feels uh, under threat um and when china feels that you know for example the united states is offering it only sticks and no carrots um they also tend to be a lot more paranoid about everything they're paranoid about foreign foreign interference in hong kong you know american the nda i mean it's ridiculous the nda with their tiny little horrible little budget that they can't do anything is often accused in uh, Chinese nationalist media of, you know, masterminding the protests in Hong Kong, and that's ridiculous. But the, 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 when there are only sticks coming from the United States, the Chinese government gets more paranoid also about the internal situation. So, um, I think a, uh, you know, this is going to be an interesting difference. Uh, this, um, well, uh, we will see. Um, Uh, Trump himself does not talk about human rights very much and obviously doesn't care very much. But Mike Pompeo does talk about it quite a lot. And there is uh, a lot of movements um, in Congress to sanction China for human rights abuses. Uh, If the Democrats get in, uh, it's likely that there will be a lot more noise about this. Uh, I'm not sure what, to be honest, uh, what effect that that is going to have. Uh, but uh, to conclude, um, I do think that um, what the U.S. needs in its approach to China is a lot more sensitivity in terms of what we are trying to do and what, w- w- what is the end game, what are we going to achieve? And just bashing China on the head, um, uh, criticizing them uh, very loudly about everything, um, slapping tariffs on restrictions on students, investigations on Chinese scholars, who many of whom uh, you know, are uh, very happy to be in the United States and are not working for the Chinese government, but are feeling uh, under threat because the Department of Justice's China Initiative is making them feel that um, their position here is very weak. These things are not helping us in the United States to achieve any of the aims that we want to. It, with regards to China, from trade to human rights. And a more sensitive approach, I believe, would actually be much more effective.
1: Excellent, thank you very much, Jeremy, I appreciate that. Um, And you've given us some time here um, to go through some of the Q&As. Just as a reminder to those of you guys who are watching, um, you can put your Uh, questions that you have for the panelists in the Q&A, and you can do that by selecting the little icon at the bottom of your screen. Um, If you do so, and you have a specific question for a specific panelist, uh, please designate so in your comments. Otherwise, I'll kind of open it up to the panel. Um, But we've already collected a few questions uh, that I want to distill and um, offer up to the panelists. Specifically, uh, Professor Yang Zhang, um, I have some questions that panelists have proposed uh, earlier. Um, Nazad Harami has asked, uh, he's expressed concern regarding China um, building a block or an alliance per se with um, other countries um, against the United States, specifically using Uh, COVID-19 as a means to galvanize the globe uh, in favor of China and against uh, the United States um, by providing assistance to those countries in the wake of COVID, so I'm curious if you think this might be an accurate representation And or if you're concerned about this, Um, there's another question also for you, Professor, in regards to you would characterize Xi Jinping and Trump as having amiable relations and then that break after covid. So these are related. Um, And Kelly O'Connor wants to know if Trump is capable of distinguishing between Xi Jinping and China as a state or if those are one and the same.
2: Okay. Well, uh, as for the first question, uh, uh, I don't have a clear answer for that. And I think uh, uh, because the pandemic is still going on, you uh, know, very badly in many countries. Uh, so um, I think China has to be very, very careful and sensitive in in like uh, using this as a like a like a weapon, like a vaccine, whatever, you know, help. Uh, I think there there were signs that the Chinese were trying to do kind of a, this, you know, by sending, you know, uh, uh, help uh, or assistance to some, you know, gun, I guess, friendly countries or countries they really want to court, you know, with uh, early on. Uh, but I, I think China actually is on the defense right now. And, and uh, because the pandemic, has not stopped, uh, and uh, it did originate in China, and uh, I I I don't think this is time for China to I mean for example they had like a huge celebration and not uh, by their celebration of the war but the, you know like a award giving kind of ceremony to to gave award to those uh, people who contribute to the prevention or spread of, of the disease in China. Was that kind of too early, you know, uh, too soon? Uh, and because the, the, th- the rest of the world is still suffering. And, and uh, you know, like India is suffering, you know, many, Bangladesh, you know, Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan is obviously close ally of China. Uh, so, uh, I, 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 I don't think China is doing that intentionally right now. Uh, but I wouldn't rule out, you know, in the future uh, when everything is said and done, uh, you know, uh, China might kind of use this, you know, kind of a special vaccine or maybe some kind of kind of assistance uh, to um, court for international uh, kind of uh, uh, allies or, or alliance, whatever. Uh, for the second question, um, uh, right now I I don't think Trump is uh, calling President Xi a friend anymore. Uh, he just you know refused to say whether it's a friend or not friend. Why you know why he's asked? So. Uh, uh, I think that romance problem whatever you call it is over uh, and uh, uh, I think early on he did differentiate between Xi and the rest of China uh, because they say a lot of bad things about China. You know, it's called China virus, Chinese this and that but he still called Xi a friend uh, at the time in like a few months ago uh, and uh, I think now he probably is treating both the same way. I think it's kind of a and, you know, and of course, you know she represents China, and and the, the government of China is represented by Xi Jinping. And so, I, I would think that he would kind of view both the same.
1: Thank you, Professor. Um, we have a couple of uh, series of questions, actually, in regards to Taiwan, uh, specifically security questions uh, aimed for you, Bonnie, by David Thompson, Austin Travis, and Ambassador Dick Bowers. All of which seem to be um curious about so david is curious about whether or not china might exploit a disrupted outcome of the presidential election and use that as an opportunity to invade taiwan Um, and then austin travis is also curious about um, the push for this cross-strait dialogue um, and whether or not there is a chance um, for real dialogue actually coming out of uh, the election between China and Taiwan. And I know you kind of answered this other one offline, but there is a curiosity about America's commitment uh, to Taiwan when push comes to shove. So I want to group those together since they're all related to the Taiwan Flashpoint.
4: Great, and I will uh, I will try to answer them briefly. Uh, regarding Uh, the U.S. commitment to Taiwan. I should make clear that actually the United States doesn't have an ironclad defense commitment to Taiwan. We had a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. We no longer do. Uh, But we do have commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act, um, including making um, uh, uh, having the capability to deter coercion as well as use of force by China uh, against Taiwan. But if uh, there were a crisis, it would be up to the president in consultation with Congress uh, to make a decision about how we would respond. China has developed massive capabilities to put US forces at risk. We call them sort of area denial, anti-access weapons. Um, And and this is, of course, missiles and fighters um, and many other uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, that really are creating uh, very strong challenges for the United States to intervene. Uh, There's been some calls in the U.S. recently for the United States to no longer be ambiguous about whether it would come to Taiwan's defense and adopt a position of strategic clarity. And there is an article by Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas arguing that in the current issue of Foreign Affairs, which uh, I would uh, commend people to read. I am, uh, I've just written a a reply to it, sort of critiquing the position, and I disagree. I actually think strategic ambiguity continues to serve American interests. But we have to make our threat credible, so we have to bolster our capabilities, and uh, we have to make deterrence uh, credible. The prospects for cross-strait dialogue are not very good right now. Um, I believe this is in large part because Beijing set a very, very high bar for, uh, for Taiwan to uh, engage, for them to agree to a dialogue with Taiwan. In 2016, I think actually uh, President Tsai Ing-wen went a long way uh, to try to reassure Uh, Beijing that she would not seek independence and she would not be provocative. And China just said, basically, you have to accept Taiwan as part of China or we're not talking to you. And that's where we are today. Uh, So China's gonna have to reconsider its position. I'm worried instead of making its position softer, that the position is just going to harden further. Uh, but um, that brings me to really the last question about about invasion and whether China would take advantage of any particular opportunity that might be created by the U.S. being distracted uh, to invade Taiwan. My own view is that China has a lot of interest at, at, at stake uh, in trying to continue on this path of peaceful unification to... Uh, through, yes, some coercion, but also to persuade the people in Taiwan that they just have no other choice. They might as well just join the PRC. Uh, Because use of force would put at risk many of China's other interests that I think are actually more important in a sense. Because Taiwan isn't going independent. It's not going anywhere. It's 100 miles off of China's coast. The US doesn't support Taiwan independence. It only has 15 remaining small diplomatic partners Um, in the world. So uh, my view is that uh, China wants to achieve national rejuvenation, that's the Chinese dream. He wants to uh, strengthen China's role in the world. He certainly wants uh, China's neighbors to pay deference to China. And all of these interests would be put at risk, I think, if he were to invade Taiwan. So I think he actually has not given up on uh, the use of uh, peaceful means, as well as, of course, pressure and coercion. Uh, But um, to me, he he is not as urgent as some people believe him to be. So the capabilities are developing, uh, and we should strengthen our own means to deter a Chinese strike, but I don't think that one is imminent.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. We have a few other security questions. Uh, One in particular, I know Herb Marsh uh, mentioned earlier in our show about military uh, modernization, Chinese military modernization, but Breck has followed this up, Breck Walker, about the DOD's uh, recent release of the annual report on Chinese military power. And specifically, um, the the disclosure that China is um, building up its military, which it has been, you know, that that report is usually details that each year. Um, But with that, what do we think, and this is for you, Bonnie, but it also is for the rest of the panelists, what is China's geopolitical policy objectives in light of this modernization and this buildup? And can we expect aggression in the future?
4: Well, I would just briefly say that uh, I don't rule out Chinese use of force, and we are seeing very limited use of force along the Indian border, um, uh, mostly with uh, clubs. Uh, But now, in the last few days, we've seen reports of warning shots even being fired, and I don't rule out the the possibility of a larger skirmish uh, along the Indian border. But uh, I do think that the PLA uh, hopes to be able to use its uh, growing capabilities to uh, coerce countries Uh, to do what uh, China wants them to do. Uh, uh, I don't believe that uh, China actually sees a war with the United States or uh, solving the South China Sea by force uh, as really in Chinese interests. So, you know, we always talk about Swinza's line of, you know, sort of winning without fighting. Um, uh, I I, I think that uh, the Chinese actually, the Chinese military knows it hasn't been to war since 1979 with Vietnam. uh, And I actually think they're not necessarily confident that they could deliver Taiwan, for example, to seize and hold uh, control over it. But their capabilities are growing. There are some people in China who I think are overly confident that they could use military force. But I found in my own conversations, not only with the Chinese military, but militaries all over the world, that they tend to focus on their deficiencies rather than their strengths. Uh, They never think they're ready uh, to go to war. But if they are asked to do do so by the civilian leadership, and in this case it would be by the Chinese Communist Party, there is no doubt that they would do so.
1: Thank you. I, um, and that I, gets to Campbell. A There's one thing,
5: uh, I don't think Xi Jinping is planning a war in, in, in Taiwan, but this is a man who sees himself uh, as having a historical mission to, in his words, um, you know, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation uh and his other um phrase that he uh kind of stole from america is the chinese dream um and um this makes for an unpredictable situation um i don't think there's a plan to take over taiwan militarily and i don't think uh xi jinping or anyone in the senior chinese leadership actually wants a war um but we're in a situation where Uh, you have some very um, ambitious, you have a very ambitious man in charge of China.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. That gives me a good segue to Campbell's kind of related question to that, and this is open to everyone, but if push came to top, if that actually occurred, um, either in Taiwan or in India, um, whether by um, intent or by accident, if there was a skirmish that escalated into military conflict, um, to the panelists, do you think that the U.S. would intervene and how so?
4: So my short comment is that the U.S. um, is more likely to get involved in any contingency in which a treaty ally is involved. That that really means the Philippines. Uh, We are required under uh, treaty language that uh, if Filipino um, military assets forces uh, are are attacked, that the United States uh, would come to their aid. Uh, And the Trump administration has in fact been even more explicit that this applies to the uh, Philippine holdings in uh, the South China Sea. Uh, And and there are several of them. There's one in particular that's called um, uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Second Thomas Shoal, where the Philippines has a a small number of Marines that are sitting on a a decrepit (laughs) ship that's falling apart and they have to keep resupplying it and fixing the ship. Um, And every once in a while the Chinese have um, tried to uh, intimidate the uh, resupply process and prevent uh, things from being resupplied. Uh, and they, uh, they, there could be a situation there if they actually uh, tried to use force against Filipinos uh, that the United States would get involved. I think it's highly unlikely we'd get involved along the India border. Uh, uh, we, we have not been involved in China-India uh, issues in the past that have involved the, the border, Uh, So, I don't think that there is much uh, potential that we would get involved in any contingency there.
2: Well, my uh, expectation is that uh, the U.S. will be involved uh, with the Taiwan issue if Taiwan is uh, attacked uh, militarily uh, by the mainland. Uh, Of course, you know, there are all kinds of uh, contingencies and uh, and I'm pretty sure the Pentagon has probably some war games, uh, plans, contingencies, you know, uh, already kind of uh, developed, drafted up, uh, even in consultation, I wouldn't rule out the possibility they consulted the Taiwanese on this. And uh, so there's some kind of a consultation go on between Taiwanese and, and American, uh, defense officials, you know, under the table, kind of a, you know, secretly. Um, and, um, so, uh, I mean, you know, the, the the conventional wisdom is that if China have a all-out war on Taiwan, uh, Taiwan will not be able to defend itself. Uh, absolutely not. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, how long can Taiwan hold on, you know, until the American, you know, uh, come to help? Uh, and uh, so, uh, uh, but I think that probably the, the, uh, the, plan or the thinking strategic thinking is that uh, China has to think it twice or three times before they do this, because of the price they have to pay uh, for this, uh, you know, they can take over Taiwan, militarily, physically, but uh, it's going to be, you know, it, you know, China to pay a very, very high price. Uh, and so I think that's probably, you know, uh, in the back of the mind of the Chinese, you know, when they want to take any military action against
3: Taiwan.
1: Thank you professor i think that with the with the amount of time that we we've gone over just about five minutes not too bad but i i i do want to provide time for closing remarks so i want to thank everyone um, for providing us your insights and your perspectives and and what's ahead what we can anticipate for u.s china relations um i'd like to provide the floor to anyone who has my some final remarks, but also Campbell has a great question that I think is a nice wrap-up question, which is if you have any book suggestions, any reading suggestions for somebody who might want to dive more into this topic uh, prior to Election Day.
5: I can recommend a book called Superpower Showdown uh, by Wall Street Journal uh, Wall Street Journal journalists uh, Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei, which gives a pretty great sort of uh, almost like a TikTok, as they say in journalism, like a description of the inside story of, uh, well, in some ways, the last 20, 30 years, but particularly focusing on the last uh, two, two, three years um, of how we got to this point of uh, extreme co- conflict between China and the United States. Not conflict, extreme tension.
4: So I'll just mention a couple of books. Uh, there, there's so many out there, so there's really a lot of great books to read. Uh, Elizabeth Economy uh, has written a great book on uh, Xi Jinping, uh, which outlines uh, his ambitions. That I think is quite good. Uh, Richard McGregor has written uh, a couple of books. There's one in particular on the Chinese Communist Party, which explains the, the role of the party uh, in, uh, in China that I thought was uh, was really worth reading. Um, and uh, there's, there's a lot of other books sort of by, by journalists that I, that I think are, are, are really uh, excellent also. Um, there's, uh, uh, there's a book coming out on the Belton uh, Road by my colleague, uh, John Hillman at CSIS. Uh, there's uh, a number of books on uh, defense uh, issues as well. So, um, and read some things about Chinese society and uh, Chinese people, uh, Chinese culture. Uh, I, I have found um, that, uh, you know, just, just focusing on, on one issue uh, leads you sort of down a bit of a tunnel. So it's good to cover uh, a range of, of issues uh, re- relating uh, to China, but uh, do read about its history. Uh, Because I think that how understanding China going forward requires understanding how the Chinese see their own history and the century of national humiliation and the drivers of Xi Jinping's Chinese dream.
1: Do you have any other recommendations and or comments, just pressing comments that we want to close with?
5: Buckle up.
2: It's going to be a rough ride. (laughs)
1: The well, optimism
2: <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I I, I, I I just don't think in the in the future uh, or near future a uh, win win outcome is a likely possibility in this bilateral relationship. I think the real question is uh, either Biden or Trump, who can manage its deteriorating adversarial relationship better? Uh, without ending up like a lose-lose situation, uh, and uh, of course, you know, uh, I think either leader want to make the U.S. a winner in this kind of a ongoing conflict with China. Uh, but uh, you know, you know, how, how, who can manage it better now to you know make this relationship
3: like a lose-lose kind
2: of? That's my kind of a, uh,
3: conclusion. And if, I may an just, and if I may just kind of tack on to something that, that Bonnie said, you know, in terms of don't just focus on one issue, try to understand China culturally and all the rest. I think a lot of times we view China and what China does and how it responds through our U.S. glasses. And the U.S. and China are 180 degrees. And and again, that's not one's good, one's bad, which is different. And I think it's very important that you also step in the shoes of China and understand that much like us, uh, you know, China wants to be a a company, a company, I'm sorry, a country with a a strong economic future. They want to be able to provide for their people, much like we do. Now, how we go about that may be very different, okay? But I think, though, in order to uh, really respond in a meaningful way, you really do need to understand more of Chinese history, as Bonnie was saying, and really understand why certain things, why maybe the response is what it is. Um, And why some of these actions are taking place. It's not something that maybe we're as familiar with here. And I think sometimes that leads to some of these. That's, to me, the biggest concern that I have when you have miscalculations that lead to some of these accidental wars and all the rest because people just don't really understand each other. Um, They don't take the time to. And and, and that, but that was something that I think as a, as a, just a citizen in the United States, you really should try to read books and really try to understand, um, because I think it will help you make a more meaningful decision and also understanding these issues better and really then who maybe is taking a, you know, a better, more reasoned approach.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, John. I mean, I think that, you know, the peril, highlighting the peril of, um, having a caricature of china is is really important um and also it highlights the importance of panels like this obviously you, there is so much more that we can say um but that this panel shows the complexity of the issue and that it isn't good and bad or hero versus villain but in fact um there's a lot of nuance to the relations um that really need to be teased out and as uh, both bonnie and Jen were saying that you can uh get to know chinese culture chinese history and etc to know uh the depth and the context of those relations so i appreciate those comments um and i appreciate campbell's comment as well or question in regards to uh how to learn more because it's really important and the tennessee world affairs council is here um because of people like you people who want to learn more about the globe so Um, Hats off to all of you who are listening and watching because you're engaged and because you care and because you want to learn more before you vote. And on that note, I want to encourage you to continue to engage with the Tennessee World Affairs Council and continue to attend um, these webinars, because this is the first of a series of webinars. Um, If you would like to see what's up next, you can look at the TNWAC.org calendar. Um, and be back next week at this time. Um, It's gonna be our second in our election 2020 series. Uh, Dr. Breck Walker is gonna be uh, the chair of the evening and the topic of next week's panel is going to be foreign policy challenges, Russia, Korea, and Afghanistan. So tonight was all about China. They got three countries to cover next week. So I don't envy uh, that conversation, but there's a lot of depth and there's a lot to discuss there. Um, Breck Walker's uh, guest will be Ambassador Christopher Hill, Dr. Svetlana Severinskaya, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Afghanistan, Annie Forsheimer. Uh, Registration is open at tnwac.org, so I encourage everyone to go ahead and register there. And thank you again for being with us this evening and for being engaged.